welcome to The Scrum, the WGBH podcast where we talk about politics and political media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley, and in this episode, we're talking about the ongoing role that the Syrian civil war and the huge refugee crisis it's created are playing in the presidential race. As all our listeners no doubt know, Republican nominee Donald Trump has been talking for months about barring Muslim immigrants from entering the United States. And recently, he gave that proposal a new twist. We should only admit into this country those who share our values and respect our people. In the Cold War, we had an ideological screening test. The time is overdue to develop a new screening test for the threats we face today. I call it extreme vetting. I call it extreme, extreme vetting. Our country has enough problems. We wanted to hear from someone who's intimately connected with the crisis in Syria. The uh, refugees that we are seeing that get here, they have been vetted prior to coming for 12 to 24 months. It's not a process that happened overnight. I'm not sure, actually, that Trump has even had the time or taken the time to sit down and, and understand and see what the process is about and which people are being entered into the United States and, and who the Syrian refugees are and who the Syrian people is. That was Nadia Alawa, a New Hampshire resident who founded a new organization called New Day Syria to provide humanitarian relief to women and children who've been impacted by the war. I sat down with her recently and talked about her work and what it's been like to watch the carnage in Syria become a political football. Take a listen. And after you hear from Nadia, stay tuned for a conversation with me, Peter Kadzis, and David Bernstein. We talk about Trump's new immigration policies and about sundry other political matters of note. a few months back yeah. and got a nice photo with her because apparently nobody was standing behind the bleachers you know behind her so I went oh, over really? there and um, yeah so that got some interesting you know feedback on on Facebook anyways yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but Nadia can you start by introducing yourself saying who you are and how you came to be doing the work that you do with New Day Syria Sure. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, so uh, my name is Nadia Lawa, and I'm actually a mother of eight children. And what I do is I run an, uh, a nonprofit organization for Syria called New Day Syria. And the focus of New Day Syria really is on helping mothers and children inside Syria and also at the borders and by default also now as they're coming into New England. Um, but what really got me into the whole issue of what's going to happen to these mothers and children inside Syria, you know, several years ago, was the fact that me being a mother, I couldn't just stand by and, and do nothing, knowing that children were going to bed hungry, going to bed scared, not knowing that other people cared. Uh, and that got me uh, slowly involved with what's going on in Syria, getting information, setting up rallies, starting to do different fundraisers, and eventually um, uh, funding a nonprofit organization focused on mothers and children. I was reading an old news account of the work that you do, and I think the number in there was 53 shipping containers 
containing various types of supplies that you had managed to send to Syria. What's the current shipping container count? Oh, we are at around 100 or over 100. I've actually stopped counting. I guess I should go back and, and, and count up a little bit. So these containers, yes, they are amazing vessels of 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 items, you know, that go inside northern Syria to the free liberated areas, areas that are still, of course, getting bombed, but on the ground have relatively free uh, space uh, and and freedom of movement. Um, But the containers, they also send hope, uh, you know, and they are a a fantastic bridge of understanding and and, and caring from families here in the U.S. to families inside Syria. Uh, And I was even yesterday, you know, in our warehouse sorting and packing, and the people that were with me are people who really have no affiliation with Syria in any way other than watching the news, being parents themselves and caring. And that's fantastic to see this kind of, uh, you know, community that's being made from people who want to help. And, of course, containers is only one thing of of projects that we do, but it's such a tangible way of people here to help. What has it been like trying to do the work that you do with New Day Syria in the context of the current presidential campaign in which, as you know much better than me, there have been some rather incendiary statements made about – the situation in Syria and individuals who might want to be fleeing Syria as refugees and coming to the United States. How has that impacted your ability to do humanitarian relief? I would not say that has impacted any of the work that we do, but um, in some ways, I mean, I I would say that the support for New Syria's work or working, you know, inside Syria has lessened a little bit. People are confused and at the same time they are on standby thinking we have this wave of Syrian refugees arriving here so they want to be ready to help them even though they in in New England you know number the hundreds only Um, and so that has affected a little bit of course of what we are able to do it's not really stopping us but um, you know it's definitely you know starting to make us think, um, how can we reach more people? You know, do we need to change the message and be clear about the work that we do is to empower and aid families so they can stay in, in their homeland? That's the priority. That's our main focus, separate from helping people as they already flee. When I say people, you know, I have to reiterate our focus is mothers and children, and, and we are women-led and women-run, and, and that's really amazing. Um, but uh, in terms of wanting to participate and be energized and come and help. Yeah, we're seeing lots more um, activity from people who were not previously involved. So there hasn't been, for example, um, people saying to you, you know, I I was volunteering with you six months ago or nine months ago, but now I I hear these concerns raised about who it is that's under duress in Syria and whether we might be inundated by, you know, hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees coming to the United States, and I'm I'm terrified about this prospect, and I would rather not work with you anymore. Have you heard any conversations not. Absolutely not. The only thing I hear really is, you know, I looked you guys up because what I'm hearing in the news is so opposed to what I believe in in terms of what humanity should stand for. I don't believe the propaganda. I don't believe that Syrian refugees represent ISIS. And because of that, I want to come out and spend my Saturday with my children here. This is what I'm hearing. Um, and I'm like, that's amazing, wonderful, uh, oops, and I don't have time to discuss it any further because we're super busy. And that's the feedback I'm getting, and that has been very reaffirming. How many Syrian refugees have made it to New Hampshire thus far? 
Do you know? Uh, Just very, a rough sense. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe less than two dozen. Uh, can you tell me anything about, without naming them by name, but can you give just sort of a, a brief description of, say, one individual or one family who you have come to know who has made that trip from Syria to the United States? I mean, there's one family that I know, um, you know, with adult and young children, where the mother now is raising the children on her own uh, while she's waiting out the process. Her husband, you know, works in the medical field in Turkey. And for him, it's just not feasible um, to leave saving lives for other Syrians while he sits here and waits out, you know, the the, the refugee process himself. Uh, and, and these are people, you know, like this mother, she has so much strength and she has to be very strong, you know, so she can hold it together for her children. Now they have been here um, for, for about a year or something like that, uh, learn English, go to school, love the, that now they can be back in a, in a, you know, reliable, peaceful educational system where they can have opportunities for their children. Uh, and she's herself, um, you know, learning the language and, and working. And, and people, all the refugees that I know, as soon as they can legally work, they're out there working. You know, whatever trauma they have, they don't even have time to deal with that. Uh, it's not that they sit in self-pity or, you know, they start, you know, self-medicating or doing whatever. No, they're out there finding work. Some of them come with high um, high degrees, uh, and they will come and they will do any kind of labor so that, you know, they can be productive citizens and, and help themselves and not be relying on, on anybody's help. The mother you're talking about who's here with her children while her husband stays in Syria, has she been granted refugee status or is she yeah. here on so She has. Yeah. She has. Okay. Nadia, I also have to ask you, what is it like personally as a woman who is half Syrian, as a Muslim woman who... And I always get my terminology wrong when it comes to head coverings. What's the right term? Well, I'm wearing a hijab. Yeah, hijab. Thank you. For a woman who wears the hijab, what is it like to walk through your town in New Hampshire or to travel in New Hampshire? What kind of responses do you get just as a private individual Mm -hmm. from people who don't know that you founded this organization, New Day Syria? Uh, Are you ever harassed? Uh, Do you get shouts? Uh, do you get people giving you dirty looks as they walk by you? And if so, has that changed as the campaign has gone on? So this is a very interesting um, question. So I, you know, I move mostly in New, New Hampshire and in Massachusetts. And uh, obviously our organization is registered in the hometown of the ca- previous campaign manager of Trump. Uh, and it has been interesting because definitely there are people there in his hometown uh, that actively want to show that they don't support Trump and they have gone out of their way to be nice to me uh, as as a private person, as someone they see at the library or at the post office. But in general, in the last few months, I have been out, you know, when I go shopping, when I go out in other places outside of, of my hometown, um, I've been met with a lot of hostility from people, um, I would, you know, like uh, shopkeepers or people that have some authority who suddenly, and I have never, uh, I really have no, never uh, experienced this before, but suddenly they're feeling entitled that they can treat me the way they want to. And it's like very rude, no, no, like, whatever kind of, I'm a very, like, easygoing person. And if I, you know, and I know that wearing the hijab, I'm always met with some suspicion, or I should expect that. So I tend to joke around or say, tell, like, personal stories or say something funny, you know, to make a connection. Uh, and Time and again, you know, I'm meeting these people, uh, even in doctor's offices, you know, like nurses or something like that, um, who give me a very stern interaction. And whatever I say to, like, mellow it down, it's not happening. And I am 
100% sure that that's because of the rhetoric that's going on, you know, right now with the presidential campaign. Even after 9-11, I didn't experience this. You know, after 9-11, people were hurt and they were suffering, but it was more sort of like we are mutually part of this, you know. We are also suffering and we are also Americans and, you know, um, you know, we were also victims as Muslims, basically, of what happened at 9-11. Can you give me an example of one unpleasant interaction that you had recently, just so people have a sense of what you've been experiencing? Um, well, there are several. Um, what happens is, you know, you walk up to, for example, to the window at a doctor's office and you are being ignored. Uh, and then it's your turn and somebody walks up behind you and they'll be like, um, we'll be with you in a minute, ma- uh, ma'am, you know, and to you, they are refusing to look up your insurance. They're refusing to offer you the services that your insurance, you know, is covered and all that. And you're standing there and like, I am not 20 years old. OK, I mean, that's how I'm telling them, but that's the look I'm giving them. And you can, you know, this is after I tried softening them. OK. And you make that phone call and you get that done. And she's like, but this, I don't want to do, you know. So it happened actually a couple of times with the same person. And yes, I could go and I could write a letter of complaint. Um, But right now I'm actually just accumulating experiences. And I'm a little bit surprised and shocked and saddened by what I'm I'm seeing. Uh, I want to ask you about Donald Trump's proposal a few days back to conduct what he described as extreme vetting of uh, people seeking to enter the United States. Vetting of Syrian refugees, all that discussion. I'm not sure, actually, that Trump has even had the time or taken the time to sit down and and understand and see what the process is about and which people are being entered into the United States and and who the Syrian refugees are and who the Syrian people is, you know, and why they are escaping from their country. You know, they don't want to leave their country. They are running from bombs and running from extremists. I don't think that Donald Trump is an avid listener of this podcast, but hypothetically speaking, if he were to be listening to this episode, what would you want him to know about the identity of the people who are currently trying to flee Syria to come to the United States or to go anywhere else and the process that they have to go through to come into this country specifically? As uh, you know, it, this is a continuation of what I what I just mentioned. That the families coming here, the individuals coming here, are people who is ran away from their country in order to survive. And they, you know, they want for their children what everybody wants for their children. You know, freedom, peace, education. Uh, they, they, nobody is coming here to seek opportunity. You know, they want they they ca- they are coming here because this is the next step towards peace for them. You know, at this point in time. Just so I'm clear, when you say no one's coming here to seek opportunity, opportunity. was that a sentence? Go ahead. Yeah, seek opportunity means ooh, I'm leaving my country so I can take advantage of opportunity in another country. Gotcha. Syrians are very patriotic people. You know, the way you love your country, that's how they love their country. They love the soil of their country. And the the uh, refugees that we are seeing that get here, they have been vetted prior to coming for 12 to 24 months. It's not a process that happened overnight. They have already endured leaving their country, watching whatever they watched, you know, family members getting killed, themselves losing everything. I mean, Syria was a very affluent country overall, highly educated country. And now they sit, you know, in refugee camps and, you know, they're out on the streets. Um, and then they wait and they wait for you know, what can they do to make sure that their children have an opportunity and, you know, end up as productive world citizens, basically. Have you spent time in any of the refugee camps? No, I have not. 
I have not and uh, I, I have not traveled to Syria in the last 20 years basically uh, I have obviously been to Turkey where we have uh, nearly Syria has an office where we run orphan programs um, but I'm running an organization and I am trying to facilitate what we can do for refugees here and how to be most productive myself what is your take looking back on decisions made by President Obama on how the current administration has handled the crisis in Syria and what has been done uh, that was smart or wise and what maybe has not been done that should have been done? Well, there's a lot that hasn't been done. You know, um, it's not enough to say that you get gray hair over what's happening in Syria. It's not enough to say, say you can't sleep at night. If you can't sleep at night, over the suffering of, a, of the people of a whole country, and you have the capability to do something, then you need to do something, you know? I mean, the motto of New Day Syria is one person at a time, one humanity closer, because I could not take doing nothing. And I'm just a person. And being the president of a country that has <laughs> stakes all over the world, it's not enough to, to say, you know, yeah, maybe we should, you know, consider a no-fly zone. And, and five, six years later, people are still getting bombed daily. What Obama needs to do is say, this is, you know, this is not something we can sit by and watch. We have known all along the kind of, of suffering that, you know, happens to people in Syria that get detained and tortured. I mean, we have the Caesar photos. Caesar, he came out last year uh, and showed us all these photos. He was in Congress giving testimony. People, they cry and then they do nothing. How can we do that on our watch? And as you know, President Obama actually told Jeffrey Goldberg from The Atlantic that one of the proudest moments of his presidency, maybe the proudest, he, he might have used that phrase, was when, after saying that the use of chemical weapons would be a, a red line for him when it came to intervention, when that apparently occurred and he still chose to sit back and exercise That restraint. is actually very tragic. That is so tragic. I'm, the, that red line and, and those days with those first official uh, chemical weapons attack because they had happened prior and they are happening this week, maybe as we speak, those were some of the most intense moments for those of us involved with Syria. And they were survivors who, who left Syria under a lot of danger and they traveled the United States and they were giving tours and they were telling everybody about what was happening. What was that, entertainment? I mean, these are real people suffering. Children are dying in front of them. I'm glad you raised the point about non-action by the United States and continued death and, and destruction opening a door to extremism because, as you know, one of the ideas that Donald Trump floated uh, a few days ago was asking people who were coming to the U.S. from abroad to take some sort of uh, ideological screening test to see if they held extremist viewpoints. Um, you spoke earlier very convincingly about how people coming from Syria are, are looking to find a place where they and their families can be safe. But there were a couple instances when we saw some attacks, uh, perhaps ISIS-inspired attacks in Europe, where it seemed that individuals may have left Syria as refugees who had the intent to then do harm in the West after after emigrating. Is that, even for a small fraction of people coming out of Syria, a legitimate concern? Actually, I think we should go back and analyze who did which attacks in Europe because the 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 Paris attack to begin with, uh, those weren't Syrian uh, uh, refugees, okay? This was all planted. A passport survives amidst bombings. 
you know, and then you look into who the people are. But we only get the headlines here, here in, in the United States. What happened after subsequently in France, of course, was that they did an investigation and the prime minister, you know, the president of France, he was like, this has nothing to do with the Syrian refugee situation. Now, France itself did not modify anything. They felt very confident about the Syrian refugees coming into their country. And whatever is happening, there was one incident um, a couple of weeks ago, which, uh, of course, got blown up all over the news also with a, a Syrian refugee who attacked his girlfriend, you know, and suddenly that became like uh, also a ter- terrorist uh, attack. Uh, so these few attacks, I mean, of course, you have, you know, refugee youth that has a lot of issues inside of them and they have witnessed a lot of stuff. But these atta- attacks are not necessarily linked at all. If you speak to any of the refugees and if you know anything about Syrian culture, people are moderate. They are moderate people. You know, we live together. We have lived inside Syria as, you know, mixed ethnicities for how many years? How many different religions? They have lived together always. And and Syrians, they love, I mean, the, the Muslims, uh, they love their religion and, and they love living with other people. And it's always been like this. I got to ask you, you are not only an activist and someone who works in humanitarian relief, but you're also a U.S. citizen who I'm guessing will be casting a vote in the presidential election this November. Uh, Do you know who you're going to be voting for? Yeah, there's no doubt that I know who I'm going to be voting for. And this is actually a very exciting um, event for me because I have never voted before in my life. I mean, I've been part of the Syrian revolution for, you know, five years, and I've always been, like, promoting freedom and democracy, and I want my children to be active participants. But since I only became a U.S. citizen a couple of years ago, in the middle of all this, uh, you know, Syrian revolution thing, um, it's a big thing for me to go vote. Uh, Yes, I do know who I'm going to vote, and I'm going to cast my vote for the person that I believe will unite the United States and also do the best that they can to ensure that we have, you know, world peace and that people are not uh, put into boxes because of their religion or their ethnicity. You have all but offered a name with that comment, but I want to see if you would be willing to actually say who it is you're going to support. I mean, it's no secret that I would be voting for Hillary Clinton, but that's me personally, yeah. Um, Given that that is the vote that you personally are going to be casting as a private U.S. citizen, what counsel might you give to her if she becomes president on what she should do in Syria that President Obama has not done? Well, I mean, now you're asking me as a Muslim and as as part Syrian uh, and Syrian activist. Recently, uh, my own daughter, who runs the media company called The Tempest, uh, was attacked severely uh, on social media um, by some by a Trump supporter, basically, and she had thousands and thousands and thousands of of tweets that, you know, were threatening her life and and, and, and everything about her. What precipitated that? And what precipitated that was that she she was part of um, a subcommittee on, you know, Muslims and Muslim integration and and terror acts in the U.S., which she subsequently did not sign on because she disagreed with the subcommittee. Uh, And the interesting part was that she was the only Muslim representing which also tells you something about there has to be more communication, you know, from the Muslim, commu- you know, demographic and, and the White House. So let me bring it back to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I, I asked you what counsel you might give to Hillary Clinton. You mentioned and your daughter's experience. And my counsel is engage Muslims, engage Syrian-Americans. You know, Syria is a huge, huge, huge foreign policy issue that's affecting all of us. And not because we are going to take 500 or 10,000 Syrian refugees here, but because, you know, it is feeding 
ISIS, and it is go, you know, and Assad is still sitting there. So uh, that this, you know, my advice, my suggestion, my my hope is that Hillary Clinton will surround herself with people who really have an understanding um, and 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 a want to want to help, you know, and and bridge, you know, the gap between, uh, you know, the, the the Muslim population and and the greater population, basically. All right. Nadia Alawa, thank you very much for yeah. taking the time to thank talk you. with me today. And good luck. Hey, David. Hey, happy anniversary. Any excuse I have to post the Marilyn Monroe, John F. Kennedy, happy birthday to you. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm always happy to do that. There's still time for me to post it. So, just because it's so insane. You look, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. it's yeah, just crazy on multiple levels. Uh, David Bernstein, let's start with you. What's your take on the possible political utility of Donald Trump's push for extreme vetting? Well, he's he's kind of stuck. I mean, he's got this position that he's taken uh, that he can't really back away from, that he wants to keep Muslims out of the country in some crazy way, you know, some broad sort of uh, keep them out way. Uh, and he has to sort of try to fashion that now into a policy that isn't offensive to too many people. And so it, this extreme vetting is sort of his way of doing that. And at the same time trying to be accusatory toward Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama that, uh, you know, he's going to do some sort of vetting that they aren't, you know, and, you know, they must have fallen down on the job. Uh, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, uh, but, but it's a good phrase. And, it, you know, he's kind of stuck. He has very few things he can talk about, and he wants to try to focus on policy where he can, and he's got very narrow lanes to do it in. Peter Kansas, what about you? Well, th this is about emotion, not about logic. Um, you know, we, the, the, the press, ourselves included, we're in a curious place. Um, we all know that Donald Trump is a joke. He's a bad joke. He's an evil joke. He's a threatening joke. Pick whatever you have, but he's a real joke. Nevertheless, um, uh, courtesy, the form requires us to take to take what he says seriously, even though there's in in this instance nothing to it. Um, we already have extreme vetting. Um, it takes up to two years from someone from Syria, for example, to. Um, make it into the United States. They're, we're, we're taking 10,000 people from Syria. About 7,000 have made it. We have, in effect, extreme vetting now. But that doesn't really matter because we're talking about the carnival of that is a presidential election. I don't know if I answered your question. Well, let me... Let me uh, I, you know, oh, I, go ahead, I, David. What I would, no, I, I want to say that, that, that Peter's right and the sort of absurdity of what he's saying, uh, it was sort of sort of fell out into the open in Maine 
uh, he, you know, he spoke in Portland, Maine, and he, he mentioned about the Somali immigrants. And, you know, Trump's whole thing is, well, we can't take people from these incredibly dangerous areas. We can't. And, of course, that's the whole point of taking refugees is you take them from dangerous areas. And the notion that you can't take people who are refugees from dangerous places is belied by the experience of the Somali immigrants, because that's as dangerous and you know atrocious a place as you can have at, at the times people have been fleeing from it. And yet the Somali uh, immigrant communities in Maine, uh, as well as in Massachusetts and elsewhere, uh, have been terrific, uh, you know, or just terrific communities. Let me hop in there for may know that. just a second. Um, it, it, it is unusual, especially at this juncture in the campaign, for me to find myself uh, sticking up for Donald Trump. But in my home state of Minnesota, there's been mm-hmm. a real problem with Al-Shabaab recruiting people, uh, young men who are sort of disaffected, rootless young men who feel like they don't fully belong in U.S. society. They are going and fighting for al-Shabaab. There's been an issue in the Minnesota-Somali community, which is, I think, maybe the biggest one in the country. Donald Trump, when he talked about extreme vetting, Peter and David, he talked about trying to discern whether people coming into the country hold views that suggest that they could end up becoming a threat to the U.S. In light of something like the Somali experience in Minnesota, is that an utterly unreasonable notion to no, put out there? No, it, 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 it's not. But you are adding a new dimension to this. You're adding a level of sophistication. Those young men who um, represent the problem, if you will, were not the refugees themselves. They were American-born. Excellent point. Um, and mm-hmm. and um, but, but, by the way, I think that, you know, the... Progressive community, your average Hillary Clinton voter, um, certainly probably your average um, um, Bernie Sanders voter, does not appreciate the anxiety that um, a high degree of immigration causes for a lot of people. Immigration internationally is a politically destabilizing force. Um, it it contributed to England voting to take itself out of the United Nations. It's EU. The, the EU, I'm sorry. That's all going to be one world government anyway. Yeah. So. Um, uh, one of my better misspeaks. Um, it's contributing to the rise of a right-wing, a right-wing government in Poland, a right-wing government in Australia. And we have our heads in the sand to think that um, immigration is not now uh, – an international issue and an international problem. I might have been overly harsh, but when I was talking about the extreme vetting, I was talking specifically about the Syrians Um, right now. There is the real issue about um, uh, what happens to the second and third generation. That's because culture does matter. You know, the happy-go-lucky multiculturalist singing Kumbaya, oh, we're all one world, you you know, just... um, uh, have been smoking too much, soon to be legal weed. I mean, it, it's um, culture matters. All right, Peter Kedz, you get the well, last word. Oh, hold that thought, David. Peter gets the last word on that subtopic. I want to give you the first word 
on the next subtopic, you talked about how this push for extreme vetting on the part of Trump is an attempt to make semi-respectable this idea that he's floated for a long time about banning all Muslim entry to the United States. My question to you is, uh, if Paul Manafort was Con, uh, if Paul Manafort was constraining Donald Trump and not letting him be fully himself, as we've heard uh, in recent news reports, is this latest shakeup in the Trump campaign going to result in something more extreme than extreme vetting in a week or two? Well, I think what what it will be is the continuation and acceleration of the manipulation that Trump does to throw all of these things into one conceptual pot, if you will. Um, so so all of these dangers from wherever, whether it, it is, you know, refugees that are coming from Syria or whether it's, you know, Mexicans coming across the border or Black Lives Matters folks, you know, protesting in the streets or, or whatever, all of these things that make, uh, that make some people nervous. And, and often, you know, for you know, some of them for perfectly valid reasons. And, you know, there are scary things in the world and there are disruptive things in the world. Uh, but by talking about them in sort of a, a collected way, as as if they're all one big thing of others, uh, and that's that's a way of dealing with things that the Breitbart uh, website uh, is has trafficked in extensively. And... It, you know, and looking at everything through a race and and uh, ethnicity and, and nationality lens, and so having the Breitbart, you know, the head of Breitbart coming on board, uh, and having you know what appears to be the letting loose of of Trump, I think that's what it's going to mean is is just trying to throw everything into the pot as one big scary other, um, well, mixing all these things together. In, in in England, in the UK, um, the Breitbart organization, in in effect, um, took over um, from UKIP in in um, the the Brexit vote, and they they turned UKIP, which was you know a, a uniquely British and in in populist in a British sense, not an American sense of the organization, and sort of turn them into a bunch of raving right-wing loonies. This is how, say, the, Ameri- the, 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 the Spectator of London, you, you know, a very conservative magazine, said, you know, the, 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 the Spectator always looked at UKIP with some you know, guarded disdain, but once the Breitbart people got a hold of it, they said they're crazy. So the, it's not without... Not without some precedent. Um, I'll tell you, I I think um, the more interesting thing is what role will Roger Ailes play? Um, You know, listen, Roger Ailes is one of the political geniuses of the, the, the second half of the 20th century. You know, he was present at the create at the Nixon, you know, the Nixon Kennedy debate. I mean, he advised Republicans every step of the way. In some ways, creating Fox News is a footnote to his career. I mean, a whole chapter could be written on him in in history of the Republican Party or a history of right wing politicking. Um, you know, he, he was Richard Nixon's godfather. He's the one that advised George uh, Herbert Walker Bush to, to 
back out of some of the debates. By the way, let's expect Donald Trump, if he debates at all, to to not debate all. Roger Ailes is, um, you know, is a genius at messaging. And, you know, it's a sort of sickness on my part that I wonder what will happen if, you know, the Breitbart people let Trump be Trump um, in, 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 in sort of large public venues, then in slick media venues, you know, you've got the genius of uh, R- Roger Ailes helping the Trumpster. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a potent mix. Well, as far as I'm concerned, no, this election does not begin until Labor Day. Well, I, I think that there's a couple of interesting things about, about what you're talking about, Peter. Uh, a couple of interesting things to think about. One is, does Roger Ailes know anymore how to message to the middle of the country as opposed to the the people who are already sucked into the right wing, you know, what I've long called the, the, the conservative media world, not, not just media, but marketplace, the conservative marketplace. Uh, he may be too far gone down that road to know how to manipulate beyond that. The second the good point is... Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe he's second, worn out by chasing skirts. <laughs> well, I also, you know, my my uh, my, my thing about the debate is that uh, my guess is that they're going to have him so worked up on conspiracy theories that he's going <laughs> to um, he's going to get up there and knock Hillary Clinton to the ground to prove that she's fragile and weak. <laughs> <laughs> but but the other thing I, uh, I was going to say about Ailes and, and Breitbart and, and Trump is does, at this point and going forward, are they trying to minimize the loss, which I think is what a lot of the you know, sort of insider Republican hierarchy wants to do. And the way to do that is to, to make it possible for Republicans. Right now, Republicans are only saying about you know, just over 80 percent will vote for him or for Trump. A lot of them are going to end up staying home because they just don't want to be part of it. Uh, some of them will vote for third party. Some will cross over vote for Hillary. There are things you can do to make them come back home and be comfortable enough voting for Trump. But that will only get you part way. Do they try to do that and focus on that aspect of let's just lose you know, reasonably? Or do you really think that this is still a winnable race and you go out and try to actually win the, you know, and what does that mean? What is the strategy that gets you to actually winning? There is, of course, a third scenario, which is that the assimilation of Ailes and uh, Breitbart's top honcho is actually about paving the way for the launch of the upcoming Trump uh, media network or whatever it's going to be called, which I, I honestly don't think is that ridiculous a prospect to consider. No, I don't. But Roger Ailes, I'm sure, has a non-compete that you know, was in effect for X amount of time. I I, I don't know. You know, the, the Breitbart organization, you know, to me are a bunch of others. Um, I, I don't dismiss them. I just don't know how to read. I, I, I don't know yet anyway how to calculate what effect they'll have. Um, they, they, you know, Trump himself is obviously ambivalent 
about this election. You know, some days he wants to win, some days he doesn't want to win. You know, frankly, I think he's such an egomaniac that he's, you know, most of the time being president is just too much trouble. You know, we had cut into his golf game. I mean, I, I, I saw David, you had a great tweet a couple of hours ago um, about, you know, he, he's, he's going to take the advice of people who will require him to do the least amount of work. And I, I, I think it was you and I responded, yeah, it was yeah. A, is a, is a firm believer in the, you know, the, the creative power of sloth. I can certainly get behind that. David, I got to ask you, if you wanted the, the two scenarios you posited, either shooting for a more respectable loss or attempting to actually win this, if you wanted to do either of those things, given the way the election has unfolded up until now and the huge structural deficit, judging from the polls that Trump mm-hmm. is facing in November, how would hiring a top Breitbart guy help you do either of those things? Well, if it, 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 that's a, a very good question in and of itself. But if you are Donald Trump and you are and you think that, you know, you have to get you have to get Manafort out because he's clearly going to be a massive liability with all this stuff that's coming out about his uh, his involvement in Russia. Um, and, and besides, you know, what has he done to prove that he can, you know, right the ship at this point? Well, he got um, Trump so through the, he got Trump through the convention. That to me is, was his job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And um, so, you know, you need, I, I think it's reasonable for Trump to be looking at, at where things are, to realize that, that he's in big trouble and that he can't do it with what he has. Uh, why he ends up with Breitbart and uh, and with the uh, the consultant who is you know used to be with Ted Cruz, she's been around uh, a long time and you know but has not really been at this level ever before. Um, you know why those particular? It's probably just that you know knowing what we know about Trump, I think it's just sort of who was was best pushing the right button yeah. to push Donald Trump's ego. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, but look, if if you wanted to lose respectably, then you you know sort of do a, a simple conservative, but not crazy, tone it down, and you know, and make it comfortable enough for Republicans to all come and vote for you. But you know, but you give up the middle is lost, and you're not going to get them. If you want to try to actually win, you're going to have to do something to massively shake up the race, which means really tearing down. Hillary Clinton, I think, and so why not a Breitbart person to just go after uh, Hillary Clinton with you know bare knuckles, as they say? Yeah, you just stole my thunder. I, I was going to interrupt <laughs> and job, say, David. isn't isn't there someone else running for president? You know, <laughs> what in Blaze's name is Hillary Clinton doing? I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> I mean, she's smart not to do anything. I mean, right. you know. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of don't know what to think. I mean, we've got harmonica man, you, you, you know, going out there. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, just, this is what to do is wherever, uh, uh, Clinton and Kane go, you know, watch their schedule. And then the next day, look at the local papers there. Oh, They're yeah. getting great local coverage. Hmm. And and that's a very deliberate strategy. They're just trying to get great local coverage everywhere they go by you know having these events, 
playing directly to the, you know, the, she just was in uh, the Cleveland area and made some Cavaliers joke, you know, and, and she'll, she'll do a couple of local. Yeah. Who you know, says we don't things. win anymore? Just look at the Cavaliers. <laughs> right. A very weak pandering. Just joke, look at your exactly. local sports team. Yeah. <laughs> right. All you right. Know. Final topic for you guys. Uh, Kurt Schilling. Uh, gone but not forgotten, if that's the right cliche to use. Recently told WRK, was this on Howie Carr's show, by the way? Do you, do you know, David? I don't even know. I'm not sure where it was. All right, no. that's two of us, and I think maybe three of us, including yeah, I... Peter here. He would love to maybe run against Elizabeth Warren for the U.S. Senate and be a part of getting her out of politics. Is there any chance that if Kurt Schilling decides to run against Elizabeth Warren, that he could give her a competitive race. The Herald's very excited about it. They say it'd be well, a race to watch. Of course they are. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they, they operate, at least the front page operates in, you know, an, an, an altered state of consciousness. I mean, um, uh, it, it's, I, I don't know whether the, the people making up the front page drop acid or whether you're supposed to drop acid when you read the front page but why not both well maybe you're right maybe you're right but um i'm excited by the prospect because um you know it'll just be a rollicking a rollicking campaign i mean he, he he's a, a functioning car accident um uh and um you know he'll however many votes trump got in massachusetts i think you could count on <laughs> Chilling, getting that many. Um, uh, if, if, if only, if only there was some way for us to have a test run of a celebrity Republican, egotistical, uh, <laughs> thick-headed candidate uh, running an angry campaign against a uh, an older woman, uh, respectable figure. If only there was some kind of uh, test run we could do of that. Uh, the odds of that, out, David, the odds of that are very... <laughs> that would go, because Trump is going to lose, like, you know, you know close to 70-30 in, in Massachusetts, if that's possible. So, yes, uh, you know, Schilling might be able to top that, but uh, not by much. Is there... Actually, I don't even. I, I totally lost my train of thought right there. So, and I think we've kind of exhausted that topic, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's pretty much it. I mean, it's like the black hole of Massachusetts politics. <laughs> it collapses in on itself. You know, it's a. It, it it just collapses on itself. I mean, what more can you say? <laughs> if this were video, people would have seen and a shot of way, me just standing slack jawed, not looking at Peter, just kind of staring off into space. So, and and I can't really. Um, uh, track this very well because uh, showing blocks me on Twitter. I, uh, I don't even know what I did to deserve that, but I'm sure I I'm sure I deserved it. But you're a disruptive influence on on that microblogging platform, David. Oh, it, I, like I um, what's his name? Romney's guy blocked you, right? Um, yeah, oh yeah. Scott Brown blocks me on Twitter. Wow. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah I'm, you're a real ombre. It, yeah, <laughs> um, Sean Hannity blocks me. Really? Oh, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that's some high-power uh, offense that I've given to. I don't know. <laughs> really, Nicely but, done, David. Um, yeah. But uh, I always thought that showing, I, honestly, when, even when he was still uh, playing, I always thought that he was going to move back to Arizona and run for governor there. And I, I, I never quite understood why he stayed up in New England. I guess it was because Rhode Island gave him that sweetheart yeah. deal for his, uh, you know, his company to fell apart. Um, 
But I always thought he would run in Arizona. It just made more sense to me. I don't see how he thinks he's going to, you know, he's going to do himself any good in Massachusetts. You know, maybe it's just a case of a an athlete who is now out of the game, not knowing what to do with himself and sitting around with way too much spare time. I got to say, I uh, had the pleasure once of, of meeting Kurt Schilling's wife, Shonda. I had to do a mm-hmm. little miniature profile for WGBH News uh, for Greater Boston when Emily Rooney was still hosting a, a little mini profile of Medfield. And I, I had been directed to kind of a a local community general store slash icon type of place and was just, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I was looking for anything of, of slight interest to glom onto. And Shonda Schilling was there in the store and without making herself known as Shonda Schilling, offered a couple of very helpful suggestions. So thanks, Shonda. Yeah. yeah. All right. On that note, again, a black hole. You, you, yeah, yeah, it's a black hole. I think we're maybe, running out of steam. Maybe she should run. All right. Yeah, yeah, she. I. I. Yeah, I like that idea. All right, David Bernstein, uh, author of WGBH News's Dateline DC column. As always, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, right, Peter Kadzis. Uh, good to see you too. Although I see you. Wait, day. listen. I edit Dateline DC. Don't yes. I get a Don't I get a credit? An asterisk. One part of the Dateline DC team. Yeah, two. Yeah. Both halves of the Dateline DC team. <laughs> Guys, thank you for uh, for chatting about this stuff. David, talk to you later. My pleasure. Bye-bye. That's going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. As always, we're delighted that you took the time to listen, and we strongly advise you to subscribe to The Scrum in iTunes or to sign up for regular delivery with the podcatcher of your choice. You can also find back episodes at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. I am Adam Riley, and The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.